The Shunzi Chapter 17 Discourse on Heaven By the way, if you are hearing some noises in the background or people talking, this is simply, unfortunately, my living situation. I suppose this is a good time as any to uh, remind of the ability to contribute financially to the academy. Uh, this would go towards um, the people who are behind this um, and of course our teachers. Uh, and so this would um, help out um, all the activities um, and the teachings that are conveyed here. So, and this is an interesting uh, segue actually into Discourse on Heaven, because here Shunzi is talking about some ideas regarding people's fate and where things come from. In other words, we're talking about um, we're talking about where do human beings come from, or at least where does human nature come from. We're also talking about why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Those questions are connected through this chapter. And so when you read these very few pages, the chapter itself is not very long. When you read these very few pages, you can take that, the ideas here, and then start to understand why you are suffering in your life, how you can improve it. And you can also figure out when somebody is deceiving you for their own gain. So heaven is the closest we get to discussing the nature of gods or the nature of the universe and so forth. And part of this is that your circumstances in life have more to do with heaven, according to Shunzi, and not whether you yourself are virtuous or making the right decisions. By making the right decisions, you can optimize your ability for good things to happen in your life, but you cannot ensure them. You cannot guarantee them. That rests with heaven. So let's go into this and we'll talk about these ideas in the order that they do appear in chapter 17. The first part is the idea that there is a constancy to the activities of heaven. They do not per persist because of Yao, they do not perish because of Jeb. If you respond to them with order, then you will have good fortune. If you respond to them with chaos, you will have misfortune. In other words, heaven, Shinsu's idea of heaven is not like a personal God whom you could pray to, who will hear your prayers and then deliver justice to you. That is not the idea of God or heaven that Shunza has. Instead, heaven is more like nature. There's a const constancy to it. Gravity works the same way day to day, whether or not you're going to fall off the bridge or whether or not you wish to fly. It's constant. So heaven is constant. That's the very first thing to know. So heaven cannot make you poor if you strength if your country strengthens the fundamental works and moderate expenditures. The fundamental works um, refer to 
some of the basic economic activities such as agriculture. And furthermore, if you do wish to optimize your chances for living well, then Shenzhou says in line 16, if you turn your back on the Tao and act recklessly, then heaven cannot make you fortunate. So you can be accidentally fortunate. Some people do win the lottery. Gambling is not part of the Tao. You can be fortunate. You can luck in and you can win hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. That can happen. But long term, if you do not moderate your expenditures and then you do not have the essentials of good finances, that money is going to evaporate. And that's why you have with a lot of people who are prone to gambling and risk taking and throwing away money through lottery tickets. Those same people, when they do win the lottery, you, you see that they do not financially succeed. They're not going to keep that money. Furthermore, you don't have to think about this in truly materialistic ways. If you turn your back on the Tao and act recklessly, then heaven cannot make you fortunate. Even though you do have a lot of money, you could end up like so many of these billionaires, divorced sometimes multiple times. The children don't seem to respect them. And ultimately, they are not virtuous people. Shunza says that you must not complain against heaven. It is simply thus. So in other words, according to Shunza, if you, you can pray, you can sacrifice to your gods as much as you want. You can do all these things. But ultimately, it is not something that is really in your control. Heaven is simply thus. And you can even apply this to some religious belief. If you do have a personal God, say you are a Christian, then you know, if you have any level of experience in life, that your prayers are not going to always be positively answered. Or even the frequent answer is simply no. You're not, you don't get the help you asked for. And so it, this can also be applied in that situation. You must not complain against your God. It is simply thus. Whether you believe in a God that has made a decision or you believe in some sort of patterns of the universe, it simply did not give you what you wanted. So that, that which is accomplished without anyone's doing it and which is obtained without anyone seeking it is called the work of heaven. This section here, starting on line 27, starts to talk about the work of heaven or what one might call the nature of heaven. But we don't see that phrase here because Shunzi actually says there's only so much you can know about heaven before you have to stop. So I'll point out that line in a little bit. He says, uh, with respect to what is like this, even though he thinks deeply, a proper person does not try to ponder it. Even though he is mighty, he does not try to augment it by his own abilities. Even though he is expertly refined, he does not try to make it more keenly honed. This is called not competing with heaven's work. What does this mean exactly? It's very abstracted. Uh, 
not pondering it means you're not asking too many questions about why is it like this? Can I somehow avoid it? So for example, men are attracted to young women who appear to be fertile. Women are attracted to men of high status and wealth. Why is this the case? Well, you can start to look at evolution or you can have some sort of uh, religious story that explains why this is uh, Pandora's box or um, the Garden of Eden. You can have all sorts of these stories, but a proper person does not try to go too deeply into this thinking, how is it? Why is it? Uh, how did it come to be? How can I, I avoid this reality? He doesn't try to augment it. He doesn't try to make it more keenly honed. In other words, you don't say to yourself, oh, I have the capacity to feel happy. I'm going to try to increase my ability to have, feel happy just by telling myself I should be happy. This is what Shunza means by don't try to make it more keenly honed. Don't try to augment it through your own abilities. Another form of this, a modern day form of trying to make yourself happy by forcing it upon yourself is to ingest some sort of intoxicant, you know, some sort of drug. And those people try to do this. And what's interesting is that your brain will actually stop responding as, as much as well to those drugs, whether you're talking about antidepressants or something that is against the law to, to, to ever take your brain will start to adjust because your brain has what's called plasticity. At first, the first experience is very intense and maybe the second, but after the 10th, 11th, then your brain gets used to it. It no longer feels as good as it used to when you take these antidepressants or whatever drugs that you do take to manipulate your sense of happiness and well-being. And that is because you are competing with heaven's work. You simply don't work that way and, heaven, and happiness simply does not work that way. It, in other words, it is truly beyond human ability to change these things. So don't try to compete with heaven's work. So what can you do though? Is it that you simply give up on feeling happy and trying to obtain happiness? No. So this next section starts to talk about what the human being can do. So around line 35, you have this uh, kind of rhyme scheme here. Heaven has its proper seasons. Earth has its proper resources. And humankind has its proper order. So heaven has its proper seasons. In other words, it supplies the weather, the climate, and it has its proper pattern, spring, summer, fall, winter. Earth has its proper resources. So many things grow out of the ground. And if you dig into the ground, you find so many interesting things that are useful, like metals. And humankind has its proper order. In other words, for human beings to avoid chaos, we have its, our own proper order. And of course, that is the Tao. That is the way. So the Tao is a key to optimizing your happiness as a human being in life. You cannot compete with the work of heaven. That's futile, that's pointless, but you do have some ability as a human being to change your environment 
change your relations with other people, change what you prioritize and what you value, and thereby optimize how you can be happy. Uh, that's why in line 46, we have this interesting section here. What is such is that one does not see its workings, but sees only its accomplishments. This is called spirit-like power. In other words, you notice that men are like this certain way, that women are like a different kind of way. You notice that human beings are a certain way, but animals are a different kind of way. You notice these things, you see the accomplishments. You don't know how it becomes, you don't know how you don't know how, for example, sentience or qualia or um, whatever you want to call it, the the part of us that allows us to feel and not just simply uh, be like a, uh, a bag of marbles that you shake by yourself. There's movement in that bag of marbles, but it does not produce the feeling of emotion. On the other hand, our brains have a lot of neurotransmitters, fire that allows... Um, you know, one nerve or neuron to fire and activate another neuron. So you see all this activity, but why does that produce emotion or seem to correlate with emotion, but merely shaking a bag of marbles does not. In both cases, you do have movement. So we don't question these things. We don't question also, can AI actually have true sentience and feel, or is it simply mimicking it? Those are not answerable questions. So if you wish to have spirit-like power, in other words, you have this kind of ability to change things um, subtly and not by you know, forcing people or by creating machines or using physical means. If you wish to have this kind of ability to transform, then when it comes to the workings of heaven, just look at the accomplishments. You don't ask questions like, where did the universe come from? Because that's not answerable. Or if God made the universe, where did God come from? That's not answerable. That's beyond your understanding as a human being. Next line says, what is such that everyone knows how it came, came comes about, but no one understands it, it in its formal state. Okay, in other words, you know where babies come from, and you know that adults come from babies. So you know where that comes from, but in its formless state, where does a human soul come from? Where does a human sentience come from? Or if you're Buddhist, where does a Buddha mind come from? That is the accomplishment of heaven. And only the sage is wise enough to not seek to understand this. Because, again, it's out of your ability to understand as a human being. You'll never get to this answer. And I that's a kind of quote-unquote pragmatism. It's not really pragmatism, but that's a, quote, that's a reality that Confucians... Rue scholars are very good at accepting because what we talk about is not about these unanswerable questions. What we want to know is how do we be happy? How do we be moral? How do we have good relationships with other people? This is what concerns us. And that's what should concern you. Once you start to think about these unnecessary, uh, these unanswerable questions, your life must be pretty good and you must be a very virtuous person to concern yourself with that. In other words, the people who are concerned with these things are probably not very sincere people. Now that that might make you unhappy, but what your efforts really should go towards 
is to being a good person, a ren person. A ren person is virtuous and seeks to have good relations with those, with those in his family, with his friends, and generally with his community. That's what concerns him. So the section starting in line 50 talks about different aspects of heaven. So this is actually worth breaking down because Shunzu takes the time to do this and each part is worth talking about. So um, line 50 starts off by saying, when the work of heaven has been established and the accomplishments of heaven have been completed and the body is set and the spirit arises. In other words, we only know about the work of heaven. We don't know what comes before that, how it's accomplished. We know that it's accomplished. In other words, heaven or nature or God, however you want to think about it, is what is responsible for any life to arise where there shouldn't be. And by life, I don't mean something as simple as plants that can be explained through one chemical touching another chemical and changing that form of that chemical. In other words, I'm not talking about a biochemical explanation. I'm talking about simply our ability to feel happy, to feel sad, because evolution does not actually require us to have real emotion. It just requires us to do something that'll preserve that life form and create the next set of gametes that will allow for the next generation of, of entities. And theoretically, you can do that without requiring feeling. Machines can produce other machines. And so why, and machines do not feel, so why can't that work for evolution? So this is why we, uh, you shouldn't be satisfied with a merely materialistic and evolutionary explanation of human life because there's far more to it than simple physical survival. Okay, so let's start with these terms, heavenly dispositions. The capacity to like, dislike, to be happy, to be angry, to be sad, to be joyful. That is your heavenly disposition. That is your heavenly disposition. You can have a computer program seek to, for example, organize a set of numbers and apply equations to them so that you can make more money in the stock market, but you don't have the ability to make it happy in doing so. That's the work of heaven. So that's your heavenly dispositions, your ability to feel feelings. Heavenly faculties is your sensate experiences. So your ability of your eyes to see, your ears to hear noise, your nose to smell, your mouth to taste, etc. That's your faculties. Again, we're talking about qualia, we're talking about the ability to experience. Heavenly's Lord, this is interesting. The heart dwells in the central cavity as to control the five faculties. Controlling not in the sense that you can shut them off or turn them on, but that you could seek out these experiences. So for example, a lot of young men, they choose to follow their eyes in seeking out beautiful women. Or everybody in general having experienced what their tongue is capable of experiencing goes to seek out 
tasty foods in favor of bland foods. That's why the next line is talking about heavenly nourishment using what is uh, using what is not of one's kind as a resource for nourishing what is of one's kind. The most the easiest example of this is eating. So you use uh, the meat of chickens and uh, cows or the substance of plants to nourish yourself and not other human beings. So, but it's, it's abstractly stated because it's not only food and consumption, it could be anything like, uh, you know, a man seeks out a woman uh, for the sake of having a family uh, and a family life. It could be something else like you seek out metal in order to fashion a tool that is much stronger than you are. So that's using your heavenly nourishment. Now you finally get to one's heavenly government. And this is similar to when Socrates talks about the rational principle being seated upon the throne of one's soul. It's similar, not quite the, exactly the same maybe, but let's talk about what Shunzi has here. To be in accordance with what is proper for one's kind is called happiness, and to go what is against what is proper for one's kind is called disaster. And this is proper, one's proper government. So, I'm going to follow this up with a few other quotes from this chapter, and then from there, I'll explain this whole idea together. Line 70 says, A person who is thus is someone who knows what he is to do and what he is not to do. Then heaven and earth will have their proper positions, and the myriad things will all be service to them. His conduct will be completely ordered, and his nourishment will be completely appropriate. And his life will suffer no harm. This is called knowing heaven. Thus, the greatest cleverness lies in not doing certain things, and the greatest wisdom lies in not pondering certain things. What does this all mean? Let's go back to heavenly government and this idea of being in accordance with what is proper for one's kind. This is extremely important, and this is at the center of the Tao. Because if you do what is proper for your own kind, it means that you have to understand your own nature. In order to understand your own nature, you have to understand the work of heaven, what it has given to you. So, if you are a human being, then there are certain things that make you happy, that you require. So you can start to list this. People need food, but not too much food. People need sleep. People need exercise. Those are very obvious and agreeable things. But then when it comes to something of a more social and moral nature, people start to get confused because there's a lot of people out there um, that confuse you. Even people who taught you as when you were in kindergarten, they are themselves confused and so, so therefore they confuse you. So what are these things? Let me tell you, it's not possible to be a happy person without having a good marriage. It is not. That is 90% of the source of your joy. And it leads to other joys. And that's why I say it's the source of your many joys. So it itself is joyful to be married well, but everything that comes from it or should come from it also is joyful, like children. 
So most of a lot of happiness comes from a, a good family life. Now there are those who say, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to get married. I would rather just focus on my career. And all those people at the end of their lives have regrets. They are not fulfilled persons. And they, some of them will admit this and some of them will pretend and they'll tell themselves in order to tell others and they'll tell others in order to tell themselves that they are happy with how life turned out. But this is simple self-delusion. So human beings will all seek the same, should seek the same things in accordance with their own kind. You can also think about this with regards to more specific categories. So for example, men and women are both human beings, but men are different from women. Women have a certain nature and men have a certain nature. And so if you confuse these things, you are going to also be unhappy. It is in women's nature to take joy and happiness in babies in, and in life forms that look like babies. So if you see a woman and she is very into, very much into little pets, they might have fur on top of their skin, but look at the kinds of pets that they adore. They're usually somewhat helpless. They have these big eyes. They have features that are that of a baby. You can also understand this when you see the kinds of uh, non-living objects that they also find cute. They tend to mimic similar, similar things. Girls play with dolls. And the way they do that is nurture them. When boys play with dolls, aka action figures, they uh, have a more destructive bent to them. You know, they're setting them to, up them to fight, to conflict, to struggle with each other, not have tea parties. Uh, and some boys even use a magnifying glass to, you know, melt their little uh, figurines. So there are certain disposition. Uh, there are certain. Uh, there's a certain kind of nature to them. Um, and you can see that certain things uh, make people happy and certain things don't make them as happy. Now, what's interesting about our society is we, we take a lot of these women and then we start to tell them, oh, you should, you should enjoy career. That's what's going to make you happy. That's what's going to make you fulfilled. And getting this high position is what's going to make you happy, what's going to make you fulfilled. And so they buy into this and then they forego marrying at a reasonable age and therefore having children at a reasonable age and it's gotten to the point where now everybody in order to compete to buy a house in a good neighborhood everybody is now having both husband and wife both father and mother work in order to scrounge up all this money in order to pay to compete for these houses that are becoming a million dollars plus so that they can live in a nice neighborhood, free of crime, free of 
bad characters and so forth so that they can rest easily to, to raise their children. This is going against one's nature, both at the societal level with everybody doing it and at the individual level when you decide, if you're, if you're a woman, you decide that you're just going to spend your 20s and they're your selfish years and then you're just going to not be serious about life and you know, not, not try to find a husband or even be open to finding a husband. This is something that is going to damage you and you're not going to be happy. This is struggling against the nature that heaven has given to you. So the greatest cleverness lies in not doing certain things because you're not going to go work against your nature. If you're a man, you know, it might seem like the progressive thing to do to be a stay-at-home dad. And it might feel like this is something that can, can give you an opportunity to relax. However, what I find is that men who do this eventually become unhappy with the situation. They want to go out. They want to make themselves into something. And they become restless. And it's because the nature of men is to be out leading the community, doing something that affords them some sort of respect in the larger community. That is the general nature of men. Men are people who are territorial in their senses. So if there is some sort of loud noise out from outside, if there is some sort of happenings around the neighborhood, it's men who will go out there, take a look, and not feel at ease if there's something to distrust or something to suspect out there, whether it's a person or a, some sort of activity. So men and women have their different natures. Adults and children also have their different natures. And this also applies to people within their familial roles. So if you are a son, you have certain desires. You do want to make your father proud, even though you might not want to admit it. You do want his approval. You do want to get along with him. And even though you achieve something great, let me give you an example. King Tejo of the Joseon dynasty once remarked about, um, he saw uh, two of his ministers, and this was at a at a dining event, and he has these two ministers, uh, Nam Un and Nam Je, and they uh, um, their father's there. He's an old man. And he gets up and he starts singing and dancing uh, very joyfully, and the king Tejo looks at that and says. Even though I am the king and I, I have the highest rank in the whole country, still I feel sad that my father cannot be here because his father has already passed away. My father cannot be here to, um, to take part in the, in the joy. In other words, he wishes his father could be there to be proud of him. Now this is a king. He's founded a dynasty and yet he still feels this way. 
So as a son, you naturally want to be, uh, you, want, you naturally want to make your parents proud, especially your father. As a mother, you want to see your kids grow and be healthy. That's your number one priority. That's what you want to see. So many mothers just keep giving more food, more food, even though they've actually gone past what is in fact what they need. So th these are some differences. Um, if you are a father, you naturally want to protect your children. You naturally want to see them succeed within society and not just in terms of do they have enough food? Do they have a strong body? Are they healthy? As a wife, you want, your, you want to see your husband you, you naturally want to see the, in your husband uh, certain things, not necessarily just, you know, um, what would be considered attractive in a man. But what you want is that you want to see that your husband is, is happy, that he is confident, that he is uh, strong at heart. And you want to follow with that. You don't uh, a woman does not want, does not feel secure if she is calling the shots, if she is directing the family, if she is constantly dominating her husband. It makes her unhappy. So even though she quote unquote wins the argument, even though, even if she quote unquote gets her way, that's very temporary. She does not feel secure and she does not feel happy when she is the one having to call the shots. So, and vice versa for the Conversely, for the man, if he's always being told what to do by his wife and is, all, is always submitting to her, he feels not only insecure, he feels unhappy, uh, he feels worthless, and so he's not happy either. So that's, that, that is one major reason why the ancient peoples um, did ha set, set up marriage such that, such that the father slash husband leads and the wife um, slash mother follows. It's because they actually end up more happy this way, even if the results are not as good, even though very on occasion, the wife has better ideas and is a better strategist. Even when that's the case, the father slash husband should feel like he's made that final decision. And the wife slash um, mother should feel that the husband has made that choice because ultimately that is something that will make them happier, even though the results might not as be as good materialistically speaking, because that's in the nature of man and woman, husband and wife, according to those roles. And you can also think about this, the way, another way to look at this is, um, another way that explains this to students is, Think about going to the doctor and the doctor saying, well, I don't know, what what, you, what drugs do you think you should be prescribed? Or going to an attorney and the attorney says, well, what do you think we should do? Should we sue? Should we go pursue this particular legal strategy? Um, imagine having that response. Your role as a client, as a patient, is to listen and follow this expert. And you feel very insecure, very unhappy with this guy. Even if everything turns out well, you still feel like it didn't, you know, something 
um, doesn't feel right. So this is actually how it is with the husband and wife. And that's not something that you can just tell yourself. Again, you can't compete with the work of heaven. You can't just tell yourself, well, women shouldn't be this way. Men shouldn't be this way. Men shouldn't feel secure if their wife has is making more money. Uh, men, people shouldn't feel alarmed when they hear a very loud noise coming from outside their home. You can say this. You can tell yourself that this is not the case. But you can't change yourself. And this is going to be a very futile struggle. This is going to be a huge self-conflict inside you. You can't change your nature. You can only find ways to optimize the satisfaction of what makes you happy and what makes you unhappy. Shenzhen here is careful to not use the word nature. I'm using this for convenience sake. Because later on, we have this chapter that says human nature is bad. Okay, Then you kind of end up in this confusing question of, well, if human nature is bad, why should we naturally satisfy ourselves? When we get to that chapter, we'll talk about that more. But basically what this means is human nature is bad. What that means is that human nature, uh, human beings as we're born, we are not people who are good at pursuing our desires in a way that does actually make us happy. And we are born without the wisdom and knowledge to pursue the way. And the way is not simply, the Tao is not simply a way of making yourself happy as an individual at the cost of others. It is a way of making yourself happier alongside and with other people. And so once you come to this understanding of how the way the Tao works, it doesn't only benefit you, it benefits everybody else. This is not like a stock market strategy where you want to keep it to yourself until you've made the investments and then somebody else uh, is buying into it later. That doesn't work this way. It's not like military strategy, again, where you want to keep it to yourself. It's not like business strategy where you want to keep it to yourself for, to seek your personal advantage. The Tao is greater than that. If you know the Tao, you want to have everybody else understand the Tao because that magnifies this effect, both at the individual level and at the community level. So the understanding of human nature, the fact that we cannot avoid human nature, and the idea of optimizing our desires in a way that allows us and other people to optimize these desires and understanding what is more important and not what is lesser of importance. For example, the, the spiritual life is more important than the material life. Morality is more important than money. Family is more important than status. Once we understand these things, then we can really truly understand why the Tao is important and why the Tao is the way that it is. In one sense, for you philosophically inclined people out there, this chapter is the one that you uh, would want to start with. But it's probably ordered this way because most people are not philosophically oriented. Um, and so you need to have this understanding of the fact that you need to improve your life, your community needs to improve, and that's, that's how you get all the way up to 
this chapter where you talk about more uh, philosophically deep things and things that if some random person started talking to you about, you wouldn't believe them until they had some credibility. So you can think of the first 16 chapters as building that credibility so that you finally listen to some metaphysics um, about the Tao. Okay, now we get to some parts here in line 87 about this question, are order and disorder due to heaven? And this is a very interesting point. Basically, this is where Shunza starts to say, don't be superstitious about phenomena. Because one way to look at this is, oh, the, the world is getting worse. Bad things are happening to me. The climate is changing. This is because the punishment of heaven or of God. And Shosa says, no. Heaven is constant. These things were the same for both you and Jeb, but you, the king, the sagely king, use them to bring about order. But Jeb, the tyrant, use them to bring about disorder. And so order and disorder are not due to heaven. In other words, are due to human beings. Right? Same thing with the seasons, same thing with the earth. It's the human beings that cause order or disorder to happen good or evil to heaven. They are not given to you directly by heaven. So poetically, in line 108, it says, heaven does not stop producing winter because human beings dislike cold. Earth does not stop being broad because human beings dislike huge distances. And the judge does not cease his conduct because of the chatter of petty men. Petty men are those who do not understand the difference between what they can change and what they cannot change. They do not understand the difference between what is possible and what is impossible. And so therefore, and they don't understand what is the difference between valuable and invaluable. So therefore, they always think about the wrong ways of doing things, about the wrong ways to become happy. They think about finding happiness in drugs they think about hap finding happiness in status and people's praises. They don't actually consider what is truly something that makes them happy. And so they seek more money when what they have is already satisfactory. And so all people who keep working until they become multi-billionaires, they are petty men without exception. If you happen to be a wealthy person, and you, you're, this kind of startles you or even upsets you, good, then you can go ahead and ask me for wisdom and advice. Heaven has a constant way, earth has a constant measure, and the Jinza has a constant substance. There's a constancy to all these things. Human beings have the option of becoming constant but we are not born constant. We're not born virtuous. We're not born as Jinzu. So the line in 116 says, so why should others' words be of concern to me? Indeed, people will always have their quote unquote wisdom. They'll think they're being clever 
and they'll praise certain people and not other people. Don't get caught up in that. The big pro one of the big problems about democracy is that it teaches us that what is popular is correct, and what the majority and the majority is right. They are not. It's far. The majority is like a broken clock. Only by coincidence are they correct. The majority of people are uncultivated people, and remember, human beings are born without wisdom and virtue. And so, if you understand this, then if what you do happens to fall in with the, the quote-unquote wisdom of the common people, you should think about what you're doing twice. You should be very careful about it. I like this line in 125. The Junzi, the virtuous person, respects what rests with himself and does not long for what rests with heaven. The petty man is opposite. The petty man sets aside what rests with himself and instead longs for what rests with heaven. So the petty people, they're always trying to use some sort of fortune telling or good luck or they, they rely too much on prayer. They don't go out and work on what rests with oneself. In other words, be able to cultivate your wisdom in order, in other words, to discipline yourself in order, in other words, to develop your virtue, to build on it. So the gentleman, the Junzi instead, he respects what rests with himself. He works on himself and he does not try to obtain great fortune from heaven. Line 139, here we have um, this question about strange things happening in heaven and earth. To marvel at them is permissible, but to fear them is wrong. These days, people are less superstitious. However, they're not completely unsuperstitious. For example, uh, if you know how people actually invest in the stock market, they become very superstitious. They, they, they even, uh, some of them even start to use fortune tellers to figure out where to invest and when to invest. They're not thinking logically and rationally. They're not thinking in terms of what we find later, human ill omens. So you can marvel at these things out in nature, an eclipse or an earthquake. You can marvel at them, but to fear them is wrong. In other words, to say, oh, this happened in the future, the future will be bad. Um, now, of course, people, some people today, they still look at zodiacs and whatever. And the way that zodiacs work is that they give you a very vague prediction. And so looking back, it always seems to, to be true because of how vaguely worded it is. So it's taking advantage of what psychologists call confirmation bias. If you think something is going to be true, then you're going to interpret your observations in a way that supports that belief. And people do that all the time, and that's why people become more superstitious over time. It's because they're not looking at this with fresh eyes. They're just interpreting things to confirm what they already believe, and then the belief gets even stronger. 
to avoid this is very difficult. It takes a lot of mental self-discipline and and work. You you can do it. It's not completely hopeless, but it it does uh, require you to work hard at it. And sometimes it for for many for most people it requires them to go through difficult times to reassess what they have believed all this time. So to marvel at them is permissible, but to fear them is wrong. This is next comes in line 150 um, a really important point of things that come to pass it is human ill omens that is to be feared you want to read this whole paragraph again and again look at what is said um, the first part is talking about uh, some agricultural works so in other words if agriculture is being neglected you should worry. So if you are living in a country and you're constantly importing food, disaster is soon to follow because the amount of food that is produced and the ability to ship it around, what we might call today supply chains, those are not always stable. And I'm not talking about necessarily year to year, but from decade to decade. So if you're living in a country and you're not, you have to keep importing food from potentially hostile countries, then you're going to have some hard times ahead. Um, look at this part. Buying rice is expensive and the people face famine. It's not specifically rice, obviously, but when food gets more expensive. Today, when inflation is dire, that's a human ill omen. In other words, really bad things are about to come. The problem with inflation is not even just that you have to pay more today or even tomorrow. The problem is people, when this happens, people turn to crime. There's chaos. Families are broken apart. Politicians become even more predatory. When this happens, when you have stark inflation, then your society is falling apart. Is going to that is going to happen very soon. Um, famines, yes, back then, especially, that could happen because of the climate. But famines, especially today, happen are more likely to happen when expenditures are not done well and government is not orderly. You're supposed to produce more grain than you need to eat, need for eating every year when, it's, when the harvests are good, and then you're supposed to store that extra grain. And then on, bad, on, on hard times, then you're supposed to redistribute it. Now, there can be uh, equivalents of that outside of grain, but the general idea of saving up and regulating expenditures is important. You don't want to have an economy that is extremely consumerist, where things are even designed to break down over time within five or years or something. You don't want to have all these laptops and cars design and appliances designed to break down. Okay, you want stuff that is sturdy and long lasting, and you want to punish people using laws similar to those that punish fraud for those who are designing products intentionally to fail. Of course, that's something that 
is common these days. So we're going to have some really hard times ahead. I'm not going to predict exactly what year this is. But within your lifetime, uh, if you're the average adult, within your lifetime, there's going to be some really bad things happening. Because these are human ill omens. They're caused by human beings. And so they're a good indication of how society is going to be into the future. Let's talk about a few other things. Um, we have this kind of interesting lines. Uh, domestic animals produce monstrous offspring. Uh, this is not some sort of, you know, back then they are trying to breed animals, and we still do. I, I uh, we still do. But back then, you know, there was more uh, innovation in this area uh, with taking one animal and bringing them. So this is why today you have dogs uh, that don't really look like wolves. What they look like are little to toys, and women carry around these dogs in their purses. And uh, that's because of breeding. You're selecting these traits and you're breeding them together. So um, if you have improper breeding, this is what Chuzo refers, uh, was talking about when he's saying the domestic animals produce monstrous offspring. You're breeding the wrong animals together. Uh, you know, a horse and a donkey end up creating a mule. Now, is that monstrous? Is that what Shuzu considers monstrous? I don't, I, I don't know. A lot of uh, peoples have produced mules, but there are other animals that are not useful, um, and those are probably what Shuzu means by monstrous offspring. So, what does it relate to? It's, it's related to the fact that you have these people who are in the agricultural sector. They're farming and ranching, but they don't know what they're doing. That's actually something that's happening today. Uh, this year, this year in the last, you have a lot of these stories where uh, these chicken farmers, are, their whole coop is lost, or these uh, cattle far ranchers, their whole cattle is lost because they don't know what they're doing. These guys are, um, from what I've heard in the news, these guys are just doctors who get bored with their practice because uh, you know for the most part being a doctor is not actually intellectually challenging for these people they're they're smart people but the the work they do is very routine so they do other stuff and some of them they, they try to play rancher so they they buy up this ranch and then all these cows die and it's, which is already bad enough that the cows die but then now people who are uh, who want to eat uh, meat they the the prices go up for that so this, this has to do with farmers and ranchers not knowing what they're doing. And that's, of course, a human ill omen. When government orders are not clear, when policies are not timely. Okay, when government orders are not clear, if you look at the laws and it's all vague and hard to interpret, this is something, this is a source of chaos. Govern, government orders, laws should be, um, they should not be so numerous they should be clear enough for the common people to understand. So why is this a bad thing? When they're too numerous, people start to stop paying attention to what's actually part of the law and they cease to have respect for the law because everybody eventually breaks some kind of law. Um, it's also a bad sign that they want to pass so many numerous laws because you only pass laws when you have problems 
And you have problems because the people are not virtuous, they're acting shamelessly and immorally. And they're acting shamelessly and immorally because the government is not setting the proper example and not maintaining the culture in a good way. So bad government is what leads to more laws. And then more laws, ironically, leads to even worse behavior because people lose respect for the law. So you can see how this predicts the fall of society. When policies are not timely, you know, in other words, they're too early or too late. They're not appropriate in their degree. Right now, America is accepting more and more certain states, especially like California, sanctuary states, quote unquote, they're accepting more and more people in. But the life is not good there. Economically, it's hard to, to do well. And furthermore, socially, it's really bad. And you're accepting more people, that's not a timely and appropriate policy to have. If the whole country is doing really well, you know, there's plenty of food, then you can accept more people inside. You can start to think about doing that. And you have to be still careful about how many people to bring in, who to bring in, on what basis, you know, so that you're not just getting in people who were kicked out of their own country because they're criminals. You want to be very selective and so forth. Those are timely and appropriate policies. On the other hand, if there's some airborne illness that's affecting mostly only the elderly, and you're shutting down everybody's business, everybody's small business, in order to combat that, that's not a timely, and you're doing that for an entire two years or more, that's not a timely policy. So basically, if you look at all this, the end times are near. Your, your society is collapsing. Now, be careful, because uh, your country might be very good at branding itself is very good at uh, managing brand names and its prestige. Let me ask you something. Uh, if Coca-Cola changed this formula, it's no longer Coca-Cola. It's just a different drink. They just kept the name. If Apple is no longer being led by Steve Jobs, it is in effect a different kind of company. Now, it does from the consumer end if it's still uh, sells the same basic products and it's the same basic quality it's not so much of a deal from the consumer perspective but if you look at american history it's called the united states of america but look at how often the constitution has changed the america that you live in has nothing to do except in terms of name and territory certain parts of the territory with the uh, america that the founders of the country george washington and etc lived in it's a completely different country, completely different. Um, racially, it's completely different. And, and I don't just mean, uh, you know, Caucasians. What I mean is specifically the people who lived there during that time came from Britain and certain parts of Britain. So that when the Irish came over, it was new. And then outside of Britain, when the Italians came, it was new. And it was controversial because they did not quite... Uh, fit in so easily with the culture that was already there. So the America that was there culturally and ethnically is completely different, but also think about it in terms of the Constitution. The Constitution changes dramatically after the Civil War because now it's not just the end of slavery. Uh, and by the way, we still do have slavery. We just we just kind of have an indirect version of it, okay? Because if you're in debt, 
you essentially have to work in order to survive. Whether that debt is college loans or the mortgage, you have to work to survive and you're under constant stress and the threat of violence because you can get kicked out of your home by armed men, the sheriff, if you don't pay up. So it's indirect slavery. But the, the thing about the Civil War, post-Civil War amendments or the Reconstruction Amendments, 13, 14, and 15, is that together, what they do is that anybody who's born in the United States is automatically a citizen, so that changes uh, everything um, in terms of who is here and what culture they really belong to. Um, but furthermore, uh, it applies the Constitution to the states and dramatically increases federal power over states. So the states are no longer really their own country with their own laws and get to decide how their way of life is. Now the federal government is the one who is really telling, um, you know, oh, you can't restrict um, people's dress this way or you can't restrict people's ownership of weapons this way. You know, so this cuts both ways. Uh, you know, if you're, if you don't like guns, this prevents California from having, or New York from having more stringent gun laws. Um, or if you are in favor of, you know, gun ownership, uh, then it prevents your state from allowing more gun ownership. So it cuts, it cuts both ways. It cuts, um, it, basically now you're stuck having to contend with all these people from all these other states. And there, these states can be very different from each other in culture and belief and how they, how their societies work and economies work. So it, it basically drags everybody down. Nobody can really figure out what works for them and apply it. Um, you've also got the progressivist movement. So you've got these uh, other amendments like the one that allows women's suffrage the prohibition of alcohol, which is reversed because it doesn't work. Um, again, you can't use laws directly to change the culture. That only works to such a degree. You can't really, it's really hard to get rid of something like alcohol. But, it, but moreover, it begins direct elections, direct elections of senators, for example. It used to be that you only had to pay attention to voting for certain state representatives and then those guys in their state senate or assembly, they would go ahead and they would choose the senators to represent them in the federal government. So you got more representation based off of what your state's problems were rather than some kind of abstracted political issue, like such as, you know, um, should abortion be allowed or not? And when can a, a woman specifically have an abortion? So we have those now further, this is another step towards the federal government deciding this as a whole rather than local people at the local level deciding these matters. And then you've got World War II and you've got a lot of change after that. Um, and then you've got things like income tax, the, 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 the Fed, and then they get you uh, print out money and change economic policy. And so there's, my point in all this is that America has changed drastically in how it works and the kind of life that you live. 
you have basically nothing in common. You have nothing fundamentally in common with the people who lived 200 years ago in, this, in that country. And every 40 years, you see some very radically different change. So once you realize that, you can also realize that there's always some sort of great calamity that produces these changes. So the Civil War is, a, is still the war that had the most casualties out of any American war. That is a calamity. That is a collapse of society, at least in the, in the South. When we get to World War One and Two, you have essentially another kind of collapse, because if you compare the life before those wars and after, they are very different. The Great Depression is essentially a collapse, and when you draft all these people to die in Europe and in the Pacific, this is essentially another kind of collapse. So collapses doesn't mean everybody dies. It means that your whole way of life is completely different, and you suffer through some very traumatic experience for nearly an entire generation of people. And so people lose their innocence, people lose their friendliness, people become violent in every asset, aspect of their life. So don't think that this is something that hasn't happened if you live in, in a country like America or Canada or Britain. These things are not something you want to live th through. So even if you say, well, they're not truly collapses, they're not a collapse like the Roman Empire's collapse, where they don't even have the name anymore, what does it matter to you? You're a human being. You have children, you have a family to take care of. If your country overall is doing well, but your family gets robbed and beaten and killed, that's the end for you. It doesn't matter what, how much your country's GDP is. So think about it that way. All right, again in line 161 in this paragraph, when Lee and E are not cultivated, when insiders and outsiders are not properly differentiated, in other words, we don't differentiate the difference between those who are inside political influence and outside as simply commoners. And so what happens is Nobody knows what they're really responsible for, and you can't assign blame when things go wrong. That's the real problem with this. It is not to keep things secret. That's not the purpose, according to Sunza, because Sunza does not believe that this is using deception, hiding things, is a good way to run a country. And it's not. Um, because you don't, it's not necessary, and furthermore, everybody acts out of fear and nobody trusts each other. And trust is a foundation of true lasting power. Um, so when Lee and Yi are not cultivated, when insiders are, and outsiders are not properly differentiated, when men and women engage in perverse disorderly conduct, um, I'll read this whole thing and we'll talk about each part. When fathers and sons are suspicious of one another, superiors and inferiors desert each other, 
and badness and other difficulties arrive to together. These are called ill omens. Ill omens thus arise for disorder. And if all three are present in the state, there will be no security. An explanation for the, these things are very close at hand. In other words, they're you know, very observable. And the disasters that follow are most wretched. These are the things worth marveling at. And these are the things worth fearing. Okay, so let's talk about each of these things. We already talked about ritual and E for a long time. We've talked about insiders and outsiders. When men and women engaging in perverse disorderly conduct, what does this mean? Pretty much everything that's happening today. You, you don't really need to uh, um, go back into history to figure out what this means. So, men and women engaging in perverse disorderly conduct. One night stands. Casual sex. Moving in before marrying. This is a problem because you're basically living the life of a, of a married couple and you're having these feelings for each other, but you're, uh, but you're not actually devoted to each other. So that really psychologically destroys you when that marriage falls apart. You're not calling it a marriage, but that's exactly what it is if you live together. Okay. When you have promiscuity, all these men are sleeping with these women they have no intention of keeping as wives. And you have all these women sleeping around and destroying not only their chastity, but going further and destroying their entire ability to bond whatsoever. Women who do this, they are never happy in their marriages. They almost always get divorced. And they almost certainly cheat on their spouse because their bonding ability is broken. Men who sleep around have had many multiple partners but never marry these people or rarely marry these people. They lose their ren. They lose their benevolence. They lose their sense of wanting to protect other people. And so they do not make for good husbands either. So neither men nor women should engage in promiscuity. When women go out and they wear clothing to show off their bodies, short shorts, skin tight leggings instead of real pants, when they go out in bikinis, I mean, if you just think about it, just use some basic logic. Is it really the fabric that matters that makes it different from underwear? It's not, you know, it's, so um, you wouldn't go out in your underwear, so why would you wear the same exact same thing and think that it's different because you're at a beach or a pool? Or just more generally, the more general acceptance of prostitution these days. People try to call it something better. They use a euphemism. They use the word sex work as if it's just another kind of employment. It is not you're selling something that is meant for only one other person. That's really destructive to yourself. So that's perverse disorderly conduct. That is a bad omen. If people are like this, then people cannot have normal family lives. And if people do not have normal family lives, they have nothing to lose. And if they have nothing to lose, they'll become more bold criminals. And that's what you see today. 
I know people, they might have, they might even be a father, but they're violent people, not just within their family, but to other people. This happens because they don't really have anything to lose. Their family lives are a mess. They cannot find joy. They cannot derive joy from their family lives. Speaking of family lives, fathers and sons are suspicious of one another. Why does this happen? Why between fathers and sons does this happen? This natural bond where they should rely on each other and simply assume that assume trustworthiness. That's what's natural. When a chaos when a society is deeply chaotic, things change very very drastically. So that the way that the the son's experience of life is very different from the father's experience of life. The father cannot give any advice to the son because the society has already changed. The son thinks that the father's advice is useless. Furthermore, in chaotic societies like ours today, sons do not spend much time with fathers. The father is estranged from the son, and strangers don't naturally trust each other. Today, Fathers have few sons, so they put all this pressure on their one son to do well. And they don't, therefore, the, there's a lot of stress on that relationship. And there's a lot of arguments and conflict as a result. If everybody had six or seven sons, like they used to, there wouldn't be so much pressure on any particular son. And then the relationship would naturally be better. So there are all sorts of reasons why this is the case. Uh, oh, and of course, when you have few sons, you're also less likely, um, seeming, seemingly paradoxically, to discipline them. Why? Because you've only got that one son, so you can only do so much, you can only push it so far. So on one hand, you have great expectations as a father. On the other, you're too afraid, uh, you're, you're essentially spoiling them because you only have one son. And so you don't take the right kind of objectivity in raising your son. You've got a weird situation today where people have no sons. They have a daughter. Uh, this also ends up badly. Because women are not by nature ambitious. And women are not by nature leaders. Even if you believe that this is once in a while you can have a woman who is like this. Most women are not like this. Testosterone is what gives men their ambition and their aggressiveness. So what happens can happen is that the father, he really wanted a son, but he has only one daughter. So now the daughter has to accomplish everything that the father was hoping for. And I've seen this, and it doesn't work out well. The father and daughter are estranged. It's so unfortunate. This society is a truly a terrible one because people have so few children. People are afraid to have children. It's not that we can't feed them. We can. If people tell you otherwise, it's not true. This is not accurate. Is there a theoretical limit one day of how many lives can exist? Yes, that is true. But we are not close to that point yet. The reason 
why it seems like there are too many people out in the world is because certain people have way too high standard living of life and our products are designed to be wasteful. They're designed to break down. So there's not enough silver and platinum or whatever you need your electronics to run. There's a scarcity of that. Not because that the lack of such things will lead to fewer human beings being able to live, but because we've created a society where we over rely on these devices, and furthermore, these devices get outdated very quickly, and they break down very quickly. That's our real problem. The Earth still has plenty of food. You know, people were saying, oh, we're at max capacity 200 years ago. That's where this idea actually comes from in Europe. There's somebody named Malthus, and Malthus was arguing, we're running out of resources. The population is going to hit max capacity. And Thomas Malthus obviously was not correct back then. So people are already always saying this, and it's not a coincidence that this is said in the age of capitalism, because all this money and wealth is going up to the top, to very few people, to a few dozen people, and they are enjoying all this wealth that represents stuff from our environment, resources from our environment, and human labor. All that's going to there. The earth still has enough. Now one day maybe there'll be too, too much, too many people, but I'm more concerned with having a society that is stable and advised by the way. I'm not saying forever everybody should have six or seven children, forever and ever. I'm not saying necessarily that because I can't predict exactly what the future will be like. But what I can say is at this point in time, it's not because there's a lack of fertile soil that we can't have more children. The problem is that there are not enough safe neighborhoods, there are not enough stable jobs, and people are afraid to have children because of human-made problems. That gets to the heart of what human ill omens are. Okay, so let's look at the next couple things. Superiors and inferiors desert one another. They do this because there's a lack of trust, there's a lack of loyalty, there's a lack of morality, there's a lack of bonding between superiors and inferiors. And remember, superiors and inferiors are not just the boss and the employees. I'm not talking about that. I'm, what I'm talking about is lord and subject, even within the family, elder and junior, father and son. Um, so that's the superior and inferiors deserting each other. And you see that today, people are not really taking care of their parents when they're old. And parents are not really able to take care of their children when they're when the children are young. And another form of deserting family members, of course, is divorce. So they desert each other. And they desert each other because they have no virtue. They lack virtue. Or sometimes the world is physically splitting them apart. It's hard for children to take care of their elderly parents when there's only two of them and they both live in different countries or different states provinces, cities that are hundreds of miles apart because their job is there. You can tell that everything is because the government isn't being neglectful 
of producing a morally healthy economy. This is why I don't trust Republicans either. And then bandits and other difficulties arrive together. Whenever Shizuz talks about bandits, just think about gangs. It's the same thing. Gangs are illicit organizations that commit crime in order to extract resources from the general public. So that's what bandits do. So gangs and bandits are the same thing. Every time you see the word bandits here, just think about, uh, think about gangs. So there's no security for the state within it's a disaster within there's too much crime and as a common person living in this in, in that state your life is in danger your life is already like a war zone but from abroad if you're not lucky to be protected by two giant oceans abroad if you're kind of a small and weaker country abroad you're not gonna have the internal strength to withstand invasion So you don't have to consult your fortune-telling handbook. You don't look, have to look at the I Ching to predict the future, uh, you know, to predict your personal fortune or misfortune. You don't have to look at the zodiac. You don't have to think, oh, now now is a year of the tiger should be good, but in six years this is a year of the monkey is bad for me. You don't have to say I was born a Perseus or a Cancer, um, or an Aquarius, and so today this will happen. You don't have to do these things. You can tell where life is going to go by seeing whether your government and society follow the Tao. And so if you study, you keep studying Confucian thought, you're going to see what's going to unfold. You're going to know when to escape. You're not going to be like so many uh, Jewish people during World War II, who stayed in Germany, thinking it would get better, and then died in the Holocaust. You're not going to end up being like that. You're not going to end up being impoverished, stuck in a city like Flint, Michigan, where your even your water is poisoning you. And you're not going to end up facing these consequences before it's too late. Line 170, as for unnecessary debates and unimportant investigations, abandon them and do not study them. Unnecessary debates. This is how you get distracted. Unnecessary debates. Some This, this cuts in two ways. Uh, one is you already know the answer. You don't have to debate about it. Look, you already know that a man born with an XY chromosome and having all these male parts is not a woman. You don't need to debate somebody on it. If you find somebody online that proclaims he believes otherwise, don't bother. It's, it's too late for this kind of person. And that person is very insincere. And as for questions like this, you don't also want to have unimportant investigations. So not only is it unnecessary to debate something that you already know using basic logic is either true or untrue. Then you don't want to end up investigating it just to prove your point. So going back to this 
transgenderism, where you know that for the word male or man to have any real meaning, it does need to relate to your genetics, to your body parts, your ability to impregnate a woman. Knowing that, you don't have to go investigate into the so-called studies about transgender surgeries and their effects. And remember what I said about scientific studies. The way that they're published shows way too many false positives. So research these days are unreliable. And of course, some people even falsify their results, as what happened with Alzheimer's very recently. What you can debate are things that do matter for your life, such as the way of government, what is moral, what is not moral. But you do have to debate these things with sincere people and people whom you can talk to. Some people do not care at all about the truth and you want to identify them. Confucius says you waste your words if you talk to people who are not deserving or ready to hear those words. Another way that this cuts is that you don't want to waste time debating politics when you know that how you vote and this other person votes will not make a difference. So some people, what happens is that they get into these arguments about politics and it splits apart their family relations. It's not really worth it. You only have one father, you only have one mother, you might have one, just one brother, only one brother. And uh, you want to think about, is this really worth getting into a huge argument about politics? So unnecessary debates is something that is contextual. Sometimes the topic is important, but debating about it is not going to change anything. And in that case, you don't want to waste your time on that. You don't want to debate unanswerable questions either, like did human beings evolve from unicellular creatures? Not only does that get into that area of trying to look how did heaven accomplish its works, and again, we can't really know. Only scientists who want to advance their careers claim to know this as a fact. Nobody truly knows. The way that science works, you have to carry on experiments. Until somebody has an experiment where they take a unicellular creature and develop that into a human-like creature, both in body and mind, I'm not going to believe that human beings uh, necessarily evolve from unicellular creatures. This is not an answerable question. And it's ultimately not an important topic, so you don't waste your time debating these things. As for the E of Lord and Minister, the intimate relations of father and son, and the differentiation of human of uh, husband and wife, polish these and refine them daily, and do not let them go. In other words, cultivate them. 
work on them. These relationships, Lord and minister, between the subject and those who govern them, between father and son, between husband and wife. These are what's important. These affect your life. These are what will make you happy. These are precious to you. You can't avoid them. The people who are monks, uh, they segregate themselves away from society. They're not happy. They're not, they're not seeking to be happy either. What they're seeking is to end emotions. They are trying to, going back uh, earlier, um, they are trying to get rid of what heaven gave to them. So if you don't want to be happy again, you can go that direction. If you think that the inability to feel sad is also worth the inability to feel happy, then you can think about joining them. But if you want to be happy as a human being, you need to work on your relations. If you want to be Ren, you need to be working on your relations. 176, one performs a rain sacrifice in the rains. Okay, this section is about, um, it's pretty interesting. Let me read it first and I'll explain. One performs a rain sacrifice in the rains. Why? Shunza says, there is no special reason why. It's going to be the same as if you didn't perform the rain sacrifice and it rains anyway. And he says the same thing about the eclipse and divination. So if you see an eclipse, you perform this ritual to quote unquote save them. But as everybody knows, the eclipse passes away. And then if there's a, a drought, you perform the rain sacrifice. If you, and then you perform divination and then only then do you decide on important affairs. But, Shunza says, it's not to be regarding as bringing one what seeks. In other words, don't think about this as actually getting you what you want. But it's done to give things proper form. The Junza regards this as proper form, but the common people regard it as connecting with the spirits. If you, if you regard it as proper form, you'll have good fortune. But if you regard it as connecting with one's spirits, you'll have misfortune. What's going on here? Junza is saying, yes, there are these rituals that seem superstitious, like you're trying to influence the gods, the spirits, the heavens. And Junza says, that's not going to work. But you do it anyway. Why do you do it? Because it's good form. This will make more sense when we get to the chapter on ritual, which is coming very soon. But one big part of ritual is that it, it helps you psychologically deal with your emotions. It helps you psychologically. That's one of, not the only benefit, one of the benefits. There are many others. So let's go think about the rain sacrifice. Uh, one is drought and there's not much rain and you're really worried that you're going to starve to death this year. There's all this pent-up energy, and this energy is interesting. In physics, if you have all this energy and it's not ordered, it can destroy things from inside out. And that's why uh, any kind of explosive, right, the, um, it internally combusts first and then it shatters outwards. And human beings are like that too, actually. What you call stress is all this negative energy is pent up and has nowhere to go. And if it has nowhere to go, it starts to cause you health problems, literal health problems. 
It can cause you cancer. It can cause you a heart attack. It can cause you to age prematurely. So instead, what you do is you perform things like the rain sacrifice. It's a way of expelling this energy into something that puts you at peace. I've conducted the rain sacrifice. I've done it. That's what the person says to himself you know, after he performs such a thing. And then he could have, he's essentially what we call relieved of stress through this matter. Um, so the divination part, if you have this decision to make and it's, the lot is riding on it, you know, your whole the rest of your life is riding on this, then, and you don't know, it's not a question of morality, it's a question of chance. You have to act. If you sit and do nothing, it will only get worse and you'll lose your opportunity. So you have to act. You have to make a decision. And you don't really know. You can't figure it out by looking at all the... It's not like playing chess, where as long as you calculate it out, you can figure out the exact answer you need. It's not working that way. So what you do is you narrow it down to a few viable options. And then you toss a coin, or you throw your dice, or you, you do whatever divination that you do. And it's not because it's going to guarantee you the right answer. You do it because you need to move on with life. That's why you do it. So if you have this approach, you will take the correct preparations. You do the ring sacrifice, and then it helps you move on, and it helps you attend to the rest of your life. That does not require rain. You do divination, and then you make your decision. And you go forth. And you're not stuck in your bad situation. And you've at least moved on. You've tried something new. And you stop worrying about it. And you free your mind up for other things. That's how you can have good fortune. Among the features of heaven, nothing is more dazzling than the sun and the moon. Among the feature, features of the earth, nothing is more dazzling than water and fire. Among things, not are more dazzling than pearls and jade. Among human beings, nothing is more dazzling than ritual and ye. I just like how poetic this is. Because if you want to live life beautifully, right, dazzling, then abide by ritual and ye. Ye be moral and righteous and have good relations with others. Ritual have beautiful relations with others, live a beautiful life. Don't try to become a billionaire. Don't try to become somebody who uh, amasses status, climbs that company ladder. Don't do these things. That's not what is going to make your life beautiful. Uh, line 198, and so a person's fate rests with heaven. The fate of the state rests with Lee ritual. Um, this is after Shunz is making this argument that if the sun and moon are not high above, their light is not radiant. Um, if water and fire accumulate, their gleam of shimmer does not spread far. In other words, you have to make use of these things in order to be great. So 
Let's go back to here. The person's fate rests with heaven. This is important to understand. You are virtuous and wise and you make the right decisions. It does not guarantee good results. It cannot guarantee results. Somebody can be very foolish and stupid and wasteful, and yet he could end up with status and wealth. It does not mean he is not foolish. It does not mean that he is not stupid. It does not mean he is wise and virtuous. This is simply reality. And I like Confucianism because it's so realistic. I'm not being taught something that I know ultimately is a lie. And in Confucian thought, you know it's true. So a person's fate rests with heaven. But the state of the uh, the fate of the state rests with ritual and the Lord of men uh, following ritual, following what doing what he should be doing. So if ritual is not being followed, the state will end up very badly. Again, even though you're looking at a country like, for example, America, and it looks like it's pretty successful on the outside, on the inside, it's not successful. On the inside, the common people have all, the common citizens, the common people have always suffered largely. And that is, that is the case there because from the very beginning, the family was not in good shape for many people. And that problem has only grown has only spread percentage-wise. And that's something that people say, oh, well, what about this one particular decade or whatever? Okay, maybe there's this decade for certain people that is good. But overall, it's not a successful state for the common people. It is successful for the wealthy and the powerful, very successful in materialistic ways. So a state without leave, without proper ritual, and remember ritual is not just ceremony, it's a beautiful way to do moral things, to abide by moral principle. In other words, a state that doesn't have proper ritual also does not abide by morality. Because you cannot have proper leave without proper morality. So if you examine whether a state abides by Lee, you can understand what life is like there. Line 240 reminds us that the rituals are the markers between, between what is the way and what isn't the way. And so if the markers are not clear, people will fall into wrong actions. And for those wrong actions, there will arise chaos. The last thing I want to bring up here is um, this interesting idea. Foolish people, this is line 248. Foolish people take a single facet of a single thing and then they think themselves to know the Tao. This is to lack knowledge. Back in those days, the Tao means the right way of doing things. So we're not talking about somebody thinking he understands Confucianism but doesn't. We're talking about people who think they know how to live life well, but they don't really. They think they know how to govern a state well, but they don't really. 
That's what he's saying here. Um, and this idea will be explored in the chapter Undoing Fixation. Because these people who are incorrect, they're foolish, they only know one aspect of the truth, but they don't know the whole thing. So they only know one aspect. Um, it's like that very famous allegory of blind men uh, being asked what the object in front of them is. And one describes it as a, as a uh, trunk. Another one describes it as a hose. Another one describes it as a, I don't know, like a stick or something. And really it's a bunch of blind men touching different parts of an elephant. You know, the rope is a trunk and the, the feet are the, you know, is a, is a trunk of the uh, tree. And, um, you know, the, the ivory, the tusks are the spear. Um, that's a good metaphor. And of course, every, every, everybody uses this for their own point, but the metaphor is good, right? You're not understanding the whole aspect. So this next paragraph um, is very interesting in and of itself. So we see these different philosophers and they're fixated on something, uh, one facet. And so therefore their overall way is incorrect. And one should not follow their philosophy because it's too fixated. So each of these people have a correlation with today. Shenzi uh, uh, um, saw the value of hanging back, but not the value of being in the lead. Uh, this is Shen Dao. So some people just want to live very passively and let things happen. And, um, and uh, this is kind of a problem. Um, I'm not too familiar with Shen Dao, but Lao Tzu I am familiar with. This is a Taoist. He saw the value of yielding, but not the value of exerting oneself. The problem here is that um, you're simply being passive about your life and you're just letting things happen to you. And sometimes that's what you need to do. But other times you need to exert yourself. You need to work hard on yourself. Specifically here, he's talking about human nature. You have to work on your human nature. You have to build virtue. You have to build your wisdom. Lao Tzu, uh, he says later on, uh, overvalues the work of heaven. In other words, we're born this way, so simply stay this way. That's what Lao Tzu is saying. So maybe the Shen Dao is more about a reflection on government leadership, and Lao Tzu is more about a reflection on should you work on yourself as a person. Mo Tzu saw the value of thing, making things uniform, but not the value of establishing differences. Remember I said this, Mo Tzu is like a proto-communist. He wants everything to be equal and therefore uniform. And that's what all, a lot of people believe today, especially liberals. They want to make things uniform, equal. They don't see the value of establishing differences. So to them, husband and wife should be the same in their roles and in their relationship to each other. It's just that the wife happens to be, I guess in these days, more likely in their, in their thinking to be pregnant. Because now they accept transgenderism, right? So now apparently uh, men can get pregnant uh, so obviously there's a lot of uh, differences that are being knocked down here. Okay, so today, even if you don't think yourself, you don't call yourself a liberal, you see this kind of thinking among so-called conservatives, they don't really think that there should be differences established between 
husbands and wives, fathers and sons, between teachers and, and students, because they don't give enough, they don't have their children respect their teachers enough, and they even go to the teacher these days and don't uh, give the teacher much respect. They treat the teacher like a babysitter or a tool. And in Confucianism, you're supposed to have great respect for a teacher. Even if you're the emperor, you're supposed to honor your teacher as greater than yourself, even though they're the emperor. Um, Song Zhe saw the value of having few desires, but not the value of having many desires. This, this guy is more like a, uh, similar to, I suppose, a Buddhist monk. They're trying to reduce their desires. And Shunzi does not believe that this is necessary or even good. Um, to Shunzi, it's okay to have many desires, but you need to regulate them. And the problem with everybody chasing their desires without restraint is that you have conflict. So the, the Tao is something that properly restrains people's pursuit of their desires and gives them enough to be satisfied, but doesn't overdo it. And it also, as opposed to what Mozart wants, the, the man about all about equality, it uses differentiation, it uses hierarchy to reward people for being better than others so that there's proper incentive. But moreover, it gives more to those higher who are more virtuous to set them up as role models for the common people. So all of this, Shunza says, is done not for arrogance or self-aggrandizement. The hierarchy is used to make society better, better role models, better incentives to improve oneself, and also makes it so that everybody is not grabbing more than they, that they need. If you've ever seen a time where people hoard, you'll notice that they hoard a lot more than they really need, and it causes other people to have scarcity. So hierarchy, those up, up in the highest status, like emperor, even they don't have all the stuff. They have plenty of stuff, but they don't have at the same level as today's billionaires. Uh, if there's only hanging back and no being in the lead, the masses will have no gateway to advancing. See. Uh, so that refers back to Shen Dao, um, and like I said, it re does refer to politics. If there's no yielding and no exerting oneself, noble and lowly will not be distinguished. We just talked about why hierarchy is important. If there is only uniformity and no difference, government orders cannot be given. In other words, the best people are not uh, giving good orders because everybody claims equal authority. Um, and by the way, this does not mean that certain people get to be treated like trash. Um, there is such a thing as a bottom line. So again, everybody has enough to be satisfied. Right? So there's a bare minimum of treatment towards everybody in society. But that doesn't mean you can't have people having more than that bare, uh, that bare, that minimum level. You know, so everybody should have food. Everybody should have a basic level of respect. Some people should be have more respect, though. Um, if there are only few desires and not many desires, the masses cannot be transformed because you cannot reward them for being better. So there's no incentive to work. And ultimately, um, can you really get rid of your desires? I think not. 
So if you do believe so, there's a different route for you. If you, if you do want to stop being happy ever again and in order to stop being sad ever again, theoretically, there's a route for you. I've never, I've been on it for a, for a bit. I didn't decide to become a monk. Uh, I thought there was more value in the Confucian way. And, but, you know, out there, if you do want to never feel something again, there is a path out there for you. Um, and some people, of course, have chosen to take that throughout history. Um, so that's something you can think about doing, but I know my path. This last part here, the document says, do not create new likes. Follow the king's way. Do not create new dislikes. On the king's path stay. This expresses my meaning. Uh, this is from the documents as primarily a book of history. This is a perfect summarization. The King's Way, of course, is a DAO. You don't need to create new likes. You don't need to create new video games expecting this will make you happy, but somehow getting married and having children is not going to, you know, that could be replaced by this uh, new PlayStation 5 or 6 or whatever they're going to come out when you hear this. Um, do not create new dislikes. Do not make new enemies right do not make new targets of criticism a new dislike would be to hate marriage to hate one's father to encourage rebellion you know to to create a love of democracy that's a new like that's not part of the king's way because again what's fundamental to human beings what makes them happy is these relations properly lived so I don't really care to be part of some sort of uh, uniform mass of people where my vote is exactly the same as some morons out there I don't care for that and I don't care necessarily to be someone's lord either but I would like somebody to go talk to and reason with whom I can trust have trust in um, who is a leader and make sure that my community gets better that's the Lord-subject relation. That's the Lord-administer relation. It's good to have that happen. I don't want to get into some mob and bicker with all these faceless voices out there. That's not what I think will actually improve society. Um, I want to have a good uh, marriage relationship. That's something that if you do believe in evolution, you, you know, you're not going to, you have to also believe that you can't be happy without a marriage relation, without stability in this love relation. And again, if you believe in evolution, then how is it that you're going to, you know, if you want to be happy, then of course, uh, you want to have children. You have, you want to have lots of children. Because that's basically the end goal of evolution is to reproduce, isn't it? Survive and reproduce. So now if you believe in something, uh, you know, if you don't believe in evolution, if you have a more religious um, understanding of where human beings and human nature comes from, or simply you're being a good observer, what you will know is that these relations are more important between 
Lord and subject, between father and son, between husband and wife. These relations are what makes us happy. And so you don't want to create new likes to try to replace them. And you don't want to create new dislikes and try to pursue a Tao, a path, a way that is unproven, that does not actually prioritize what makes you happy, ultimately. So this is a very important chapter, philosophically. What does, to summarize, what does Shunza say about heaven? Heaven has a natural pattern to it. And you can't change that any more than you can prevent gravity from applying to you. You have your own nature that you're born with. It limits you. You have certain things that make you happy, and you can't change that. So the Tao exists as a way for you to optimize your happiness. And you can optimize that with other people. You don't want to engage in superstitious thinking. You don't want to rely on or blame heaven for your misfortunes. You don't want to rely on it for your successes. You do engage in some of these rituals to get out these negative energies, not because you're being superstitious and believing that it'll actually change things, so that you can move on with your life and you can do the things that you, you need to do. You work on your virtue, you abide by the Tao, and that is the best, your best chance to obtain happiness and obtain a glorious life. But it does, it cannot ensure it because your whole society around you, your community needs to go along with that. And so the Tao is a good way to govern as well in order to ensure that the society does go along with it. And that's why human ill omens, bad things happening in society, caused by human disorganization, by by incorrect human understanding, such as you know you follow the wrong kinds of ways of governing. If that happens, that's what you fear. You don't fear things like eclipses. Eclipses. You don't fear things like strong winds. You don't fear those things. You don't fear inauspicious omens what you do fear what you do fear is society being chaotic so once you understand this a lot of shunza's beliefs will make sense that we've covered so far and this of course will help us with the future chapters